I'm Mary Parker, and welcome to this episode of Eureka's Sounds of Science. I am joined by Allison Barrent, who wears many hats. She is a veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in New York, chief science officer for the Foundation for Angelman Syndrome Therapeutics, or FAST, and the chief operating officer for Genetics Biotherapeutics, a for-profit biotechnology company started by FAST. She is also the mother of a five-year-old daughter with Angelman Syndrome named Quincy. Angelman Syndrome is a rare genetic disorder that affects the central nervous system. Allison is a vocal champion of Angelman's research and has agreed to talk with me about her career and personal experiences with Angelman. Welcome, Allison. Thank you. So first and foremost, can you explain what Angelman is and how it works? Absolutely. So Angelman syndrome is a rare neurogenetic disorder. It's monogenetic, so mainly affects one gene in the body. Um, and it is non-degenerative. So it's a very unique genetic disorder because there is um, considered to be no degeneration of the brain. So individuals um, that live with Angelman syndrome live a typically normal length of life, uh, just sadly not a normal quality of life. Individuals with Angelman are typically um, nonverbal. They have a seizure disorder that could be very severe. They have an issue with sleep, so many kids sleep three or four hours a night at, at most, um, and some kids don't have sleep issues at all. They have a significant balance disorder, so they have severe ataxia, and they don't walk well. They can fall a lot. They can um, have you know trauma from falling, but about 80% of kids do ultimately walk. And they can have um, some classic demeanors that are notorious for Angelman syndrome. They come across very happy. They're incredibly social. Um, they love interaction with people they know, people they don't know. Um, they love activity, dancing, music. Um, they really have an amazing personality and they are incredibly social and, and happy children. Um, but the main issue that we see with them, aside from all of these global delays, is that they are completely nonverbal. So speaking of those symptoms, can you tell me about your daughter, Quincy, about her personality and how your life changed after her diagnosis? Sure. So that was um, a big statement that was made to us when we learned that she had Angelman syndrome. She was five and a half months old. Um, we knew that she had um, developmental delay mm -hmm. in that early period of her life, but she had very, very severe reflux um, from the time that she was born. So we knew that these delays, or we were told these delays were likely associated with that reflux. We were told when she was a month old, when she was hospitalized for severe reflux, that we should never let her go on tummy time, that she should always mm -hmm. sit straight up in order to prevent her from refluxing. So we felt her gross motor delays were mostly a result of us not giving her the proper physical therapy on tummy time that we give most neurotypical children. And so between three and five months of age, that's really what things were attributed to as things were more and more delayed. Um, until we demanded to speak with a neurologist. Our pediatrician, who is amazing, um, really just felt that she was on a different trajectory than our older neurotypical child, who was precocious and advanced in many ways during development, and that we shouldn't be too concerned. Um, but my husband and I, both being in the medical profession, we're both veterinarians, we felt that it 
it was more than that. There had to be something going on that was more than that. So we decided to um, push to have that neurology evaluation. And um, when we did, we were also told by the neurologist that she's probably fine and that she might she's a little bit delayed, but she'll catch up and he'd like to check her out again in one month. And we brought her back a month later, at which time he said she looks like she's making some progress and we're really happy about this. Um, but in this time, we also felt like we really wanted some genetic testing to be done. Mm-hmm. So that's when we um, we actually demanded a karyotype to be evaluated on her. Is that the only way to diagnose Angelman's with a genetic test? So yes, the only way to detect uh, Angelman is through genetic testing and confirmation. And, and some forms of Angelman, like a deletion, affect about 80% of the population with Angelman. So that's a much easier test to diagnose. It's more obvious on a standard genetic test. You mentioned that many children with Angelman's are very social and very happy and happy to be around people. Is Quincy like that? She is. So she, her personality is pretty fantastic. Um, she is incredibly docile. She's very passive. Uh, we have three kids. We have three little girls. And she is the easiest one of all of them, quite frankly, <laughs> um, in terms of personality. Um, she is all smiles, joyful, um, just loves life and loves to be around people that take care of her, that love her, that know her. Um, she's very close with her sisters, and she's um, particularly affectionate with her smile and with her laughter. So she's she's an amazing kid. She loves music. She loves dancing. She loves walking. Um, she loves activities. Uh, the louder, the more chaos, the more fun, the more lights, the more people, the happier she is. <laughs> Sounds like a party girl. Yes, she is definitely a party girl. <laughs> she has um, all of those bonus behaviors and bonus personalities that come with Angelman. And um, so far, she's only five, but so far she doesn't have the anxiety behaviors or any of those concerning behaviors um, that would be more classic of standard disorders um, on the autism spectrum. Oh, that's excellent. So how has your life changed since her diagnosis? So our life um, definitely changed. Our focus on what's important in life has certainly changed. My husband and I, like I said earlier, are both veterinarians and we um, do veterinary research. So we do clinical research and medical device development and we are workaholics by nature and we've always been that way before kids and after kids. And so what happened for us is interesting um, in that, you know, we always felt that children would bring us right back down to earth and would will ground us and not make us so focused on work. And it has done that for sure, except that it has almost made, at least I can speak for myself, it has made me far more focused on working to cure Angelman syndrome than to being a veterinarian. Um, but it has not changed my focus on work. It just changed my focus on the type of work that I'm doing. So she has made us realize that um, the important things in life are, are love, laughter, and acceptance. She has made us far more empathetic. She has um, made her sisters far more empathetic. She has brought joy out of people that never were around children with disabilities before. So I would say that she um, definitely brings out the best in people. She, People are not scared of her or her, her different abilities. They are drawn to her because of her laughter, her love, and her adorable behavior, her adorable look, um, and her, her glowing personality. But it doesn't mean that it's not hard. It's almost like a powerful superpower, but it comes with its own weaknesses. A hundred percent. The joys yeah. of her are far more joyous. But mm-hmm. the sadnesses of her are far more sad. 
And that just makes dealing with disability very difficult for families that, you know, never expected anything like this, certainly. Um, it, it is ran- it's completely random, so it's not something you predict. It's not something anybody expects to happen in, in their world. We were ignorant, very ignorant to disability. And she, she definitely opened our mind to being more accepting and trying harder to improve the lives of people that didn't do this to themselves and don't deserve, you know, the genetic random nature of what happened. It's so great to be able to hear about her personality and about her sisters. And it really, it brings this sort of thing into sharper focus for people when they can kind of picture it. You know what I mean? Absolutely. So how did her diagnosis lead to your work with FAST and genetics? My husband and I always had have a motto that was told to us when we started in our um, journey of veterinary medicine and interventional radiology, which is things are either possible or impossible and there's no in-between. And our whole career, we joke about that because anytime we try a new procedure or develop a new device or think about an alternative to something where this family was told that there's no treatment for the, dis- the disorder, we always think of a possibility of, of how we can circumvent that and give, give people an option they didn't have before. When we were given this information, the first thing we did was read about it because we never heard of it before. It just so happens with Angelman that the UBE3A gene that is missing on the maternal copy of chromosome 15 is present on the paternal copy of chromosome 15. But in neurons of the brain, it happens to be silenced or imprinted. And so for some reason, the neurons of the brain only want one copy and they want that copy from the mother's chromosome. And they don't want the father's copy. It's very strange. It's very unique, um, but it can also be exploited. And so if they have a silent copy sitting there and all of us only need one copy to live a normal neurologic life. Why don't we just activate the silent copy because they're missing the single mother's copy? And so it just so happened two weeks after Quincy was diagnosed with Angelman syndrome, a paper came out at, in Nature um, by Dr. Art Baudet looking at activating the paternal copy of the UBE3 gene using an antisense oligonucleotide. And this was done in mice. And I read this article and realized that the conclusion of this article was that this can be translated for human intervention. And so I emailed to Dr. Arpodet, and he got on the phone with my husband and I three days later, and we talked for two hours on a Sunday morning. And he was <laughs> amazing. And he basically told us, and this was in 2014, in December of 2014, that they were two years away from this being a reality for humans, and there could be clinical trials within two years. So in my head, my daughter was going to have a treatment by the time she was three. And at this point, she was seven months old. And so that's where I focused my attention. And the more I read about Angelman, the more I realized that this was a really great decade to be a mouse with Angelman syndrome. Mice were being cured with gene replacement therapy using viral vectors by just replacing the mother's copy of the gene. They were being cured by activating the paternal copy of the gene with something like an antisense oligonucleotide. Then CRISPR technology came out and they were able to cure the mice with CRISPR. Then... Um, artificial transcription factors or zinc fingers came out and they were able to cure mice with zinc fingers. And so it was at that point that I realized that we had something very special here and I became incredibly optimistic, naively optimistic, that this was going to happen within the next two years. Mm -hmm. And so I started 
emailing and talking to various scientists that were working in Angelman. And then I went to my first conference. And I sat in this conference and I listened to some of the most brilliant minds that had huge NIH grants and were being funded for 10 years um, through NIH and through foundations for Angelman syndrome work. And I was so impressed with the rigor of their scientific discoveries. But what I really had a hard time with was the fact that the conclusion of every presentation ended in a mouse, and nobody was talking about what they were going to do to translate this to humans. And that's when I realized that my husband and I do this every day. We translate medicine. We translate ideas into clinical benefit for patients. And it just because they're dogs and cats doesn't mean that that isn't the same phenomenon that needs to happen for humans. And so when I left that conference. I got a phone call a couple weeks later from the CEO of the largest research funding foundation in Angelman syndrome in the world called FAST, or the Foundation for Angelman Syndrome Therapeutics. And their CEO, Paula Evans, was at that conference as well. That wasn't a FAST conference. It was a different conference. And so she, at that time, asked me if I would be the chief science officer for their foundation. Mm-hmm. And so I thought very hard about it because I have a job. I work 60 hours a week as a veterinarian. I have a newly diagnosed child with a very significant um, d- disorder that needs a lot of our attention. And I have—I was now pregnant with my third child, and I have another neurotypical daughter who was at that time about uh, three and a half years old. Mm-hmm. And so I felt like I had a lot of my plate that this was a big endeavor to take on, and I was reluctant. Um, but then what I realized was that I'm the type of person, if I don't do it myself, I'm never going to know what's being done, and I'm never going to know that everything is being done that's possible. You probably would have obsessively tracked it anyway. Correct. Correct. Yeah. So it was at that time that I realized it was a good decision for me to do for Quincy. And if I could do one thing for her, it would be making a better future. Fast forward about two months later, I'm into this about 25 hours a week, um, talking to every scientist at every opportunity. Scientists we are funding, scientists we aren't funding. Um, The foundation had started a consortium of scientists um, working in all different areas, gene replacement therapy, paternal gene activation, ASOs, ATFs, downstream therapeutics, creating animal models, creating a pig model, a rat model. And so I basically interviewed each one of these scientists. There were six of them on the team. And I said, what would it need to take your therapeutic strategy to be IND ready for IND enabling studies within 24 months? What else do you need to do? And that's when they each gave me a proposal. And that proposal came to about $5.8 million. It just so happened that another family um, impacted by Angelman syndrome and I were very aligned in our in our thoughts and in our mission and in our drive to bringing forward therapeutics for Angelman. So we got all our scientists together. We all met in Washington, D.C., and we brought everybody around the table, including the family that could um, fund this program. And it was at that time that they agreed after a eight-hour presentation that <laughs> they would fund this $5.8 million program. And so it was really through that And through the work that had been done prior to that, that got us moving quickly. And if I'm one thing, I'm a project manager and I am a stickler for time. And if you tell me you're going to do something in 24 months, the only reason you should be telling me that the time has changed is if you've done it in 18 months. Mm -hmm. But don't tell me you're doing it in 26 months. Mm -hmm. And so that's really what we did. And we set ourselves on a mission, a very strict timeline to get this done with all of our scientists. And they just busted it out. And they worked really, really hard to meet these timelines. And so 
it was only six months into that program that we realized that one of our researchers who we were funding to further evaluate the paternal imprinting mechanism discovered that he had an, an antisense oligonucleotide that was um, activating the paternal gene in human uh, Angelman syndrome neurons by 100%. So tell me a little bit about, I understand that Genetics is actually a for-profit company started to support FAST? Correct. So Genetics is a for-profit company that FAST started. So when we um, when we priced out the cost of performing IND-enabling studies and to be ready to submit an IND for filing, what we realized was that we were not talking a few million dollars. We were talking mm-hmm. many millions of dollars. The foundation on the backs of families couldn't afford to do that for one single program when we are committed to funding multiple different programs. We are funding as a foundation gene replacement therapy, protein replacement therapy, gene activation on the paternal through antisense oligos as well as zinc fingers and CRISPR and all sorts of different strategies. And we could not put all our eggs as a foundation in one basket. That would be a disservice Mm -hmm. to our donor population and to our children. And so the goal of the foundation is to fund all possible therapeutic modalities and de-risk them as far as we can until they look promising for a pharmaceutical company to be able to take that to the next step. Knowing other pharmaceutical companies are in this space and they they are two years away from a human clinical trial every two years for the last five years, they are two years away, we realized that we couldn't put this in the hands of companies that didn't have Angelman syndrome as a priority. We are low-hanging fruit, but not the lowest-hanging fruit. Mm -hmm. And so that we needed to ensure that we pushed this forward as quickly as possible in the safest possible way so that we de-risked it to the point that it was the lowest-hanging fruit. And we felt that that was a much better strategy than letting it sit with a promise of two years every two years. And so it was at this time that the foundation decided to start a for-profit arm and invest in ANUCO in order to do this through angel investors rather than through donations. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to ensure that we brought in funds, that people would get a return on their investment because people can't just keep donating millions of dollars, um, but they could invest millions of dollars, understanding that they would have a, a modest return on their investment not huge returns on their investment. And so we were able to secure funds through angel investors by individuals that were intimately touched by Angelman syndrome that had the means to be able to invest, but not necessarily that capacity to donate. And so that's what we did. And we started this company through those investors. And it was at that time that the chairperson of our foundation became the CEO of the company of genetics. And I became the chief operating officer of the company. That's amazing. Angel investors for Angelmans. That's right. That's right. So how has Charles River supported your Angelman research? So Charles River has been incredible um, for this program. And Lauren Black, who is a distinguished scientist at Charles River, she's a non-clinical consultant. She's a toxicologist. And she also has a track record of, you know, over a dozen years at the FDA working as a toxicologist there. She really was exactly what we needed. We needed someone who can translate for us everything that we needed from 
the patient perspective to the FDA perspective to the non-clinical animal perspective. She actually agreed to work with us. Um, I sent her one email and she was on the phone with me 45 minutes later. We talked for an hour (laughs) and a half and she was touched by our story. She was touched by our mission. And she said, you know, I live 15 minutes from the FDA and I know you're going to your pre-IND meeting in seven days to meet with the FDA. Can you send me your package and can I come with you to the meeting? And we were like, what? (laughs) And we were able to go in there gangbusters. And she went in there guns blazing, ready to (laughs) fight for everything we needed to fight for. And we walked into that meeting and it was no fight at all. The (laughs) FDA was so supportive of everything we wanted to do. And they were incredibly um, touched by our story and where where we wanted to go with this. And they believed in her, they believed in us, and they realized we were not a, a typical sponsor. That we were... Um, a foundation working on the backs of donor funds to get this started and bringing in angel investment funds by people touched by this condition, that we were not big pharma. We were not um, the same sponsor that they were used to dealing with. And they knew Lauren and they knew that we were really surrounding ourselves as someone who was going to ensure that this was the best and safest program possible. That must have been a huge relief. Huge relief. And they were supportive of of everything we wanted to do. They gave us great advice. They gave us great feedback. And they sent us on our way to say, we can't wait to see you back in a year. And we want to see what you've done. And so we walked out of that meeting realizing that we had the best possible team together. And it was at that time that Lauren introduced us to Charles River as a CRO in order to help um, the Angelman program move forward in the best possible way, the fastest possible way, without risking safety. And we moved almost all of our um, non-clinical work to Charles River at that time. So it sounds like you're still definitely in, kind of in the middle of this drug development journey, but that you have had a lot to celebrate in the past 12 months or so. Um, are you planning to, is your family planning to do anything fun this summer to take a break? Yes. A little yes. bit of vacation? <laughs> if there's one thing I would say, no matter how hard we try and no matter how stressful all of this can be, um, our family doesn't um, shy away from fun and <laughs> enjoying life. So our family lives a beautiful life. And I'm not going to deny that. It's modified by the things that Quincy needs. Mm-hmm. Um, but our family certainly does not um, hold back in terms of having fun. So um, we love traveling. We love the beach. That's our <laughs> beach, sun, and pool are everything to us. And thank goodness that's Quincy's happy place as well. Well, you mentioned that she loves noise and chaos. So I'll bet the crashing waves are just like the best thing ever. Best thing ever. If she could, <laughs> if she could sit in a wave, she would be there for days. I mean, same. Yeah. Yes. Who wouldn't, right? (laughs) So would our seven-year-old and so would our three-year-old. Yep. Yes. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us or with me about this. Um, It's just a fascinating story and you guys have accomplished so much. And I really think that the for-profit model is just a really good way to go for something that will affect so many patients. Agree. And and de-risking something like this with angel funds and then it becomes unbearable for pharmaceutical companies to resist. Absolutely. And so all of the work that went into this has really allowed us to have our choice of the best pharmaceutical partner for this program rather than anybody that would take it early so that we know it's moving forward. We had Mm -hmm. our choice to choose. And for me, that is the most important thing for my child to know that her program will be in the best of hands and that I know it's not only effective, but it's incredibly safe. That's a fantastic position to be in. 
Yes, for sure. And we hope that we can help support other diseases to do exactly the same thing. Well, thank you again for talking with me. This has been wonderful, and I'm so grateful that you took the time. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Sounds of Science. Like what you hear? Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and get a new episode on the first Tuesday of the month. You can also visit us at eureka.criver.com for interesting science news every day and email us your questions at soundsofscience at crl.com. 